we lead the world in facing down a threat to decency and humanity. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McCroy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to take a look at a topic that is little talked about, a little topic known as exopolitics. As if regular politics isn't bad enough, right? We're going to talk about exopolitics. What exactly is exopolitics? Well, this would be the alleged interactions between militaries and governments of the world and extraterrestrials, alleged extraterrestrials, the communications and the relationships between these beings and a lot of this stuff might be a little bit of a bridge too far for some people. But rest assured, there are researchers who have delved very heavily into this topic, and they have presented some evidence to validate some of their claims here. Now, a lot of it is circumstantial evidence with nothing really solid to back it, and a lot of it is second-hand testimony. But there's enough of it, and from enough separate, disparate sources that are presenting some of the same material, the same types of evidences, that tend to lend credence to some of the claims, just based upon the numbers of people that have made some of these observations and claims out there. So based upon the sheer numbers alone, it's worth considering what's being said here. And when you realize that there are actually those people and different organizations in positions of power in this world that have taken this topic seriously and have decided to move forward with this type of a thing. In fact, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the United Nations has appointed an alien ambassador. <laughs> I'm not kidding. You could look that up. 
I don't remember what the exact title was, but this would be the person who would speak for planet Earth. If in the event that extraterrestrials would show up looking to communicate with us. And there are people allegedly within the auspices of the military-industrial complex and the hidden portions of the secret government that claim to know more about this and have programs in place and dealings with, well, aliens. That's the claim. And tonight we're going to read some of those claims because I like to explore this avenue of thought sometimes. I like to consider the information and not completely rule it out. Not completely rule it out because there may be a kernel of truth to be found somewhere in here. And at the very least, if we don't find a kernel of truth, at least we can find archetypes that are being leveraged. Leveraged to steer the human mind in certain directions. So it's important that we look at this stuff. So tonight we're going to be reading from a book titled UFOs, Exopolitics, and the New World Disorder, written by a guy named Ed Comerick. This is an interesting book. I picked this one up long ago because I've always been interested in the topic to see what's being said out there. So he has spoken to a lot of people within the ufology community. And he's compiled some information here together, which gives you a broad overview of what the ufology narrative is about perhaps who some of these extraterrestrial beings are and what kind of relationships they have with human beings here. And some of the secret programs that go along with that. So it should be interesting to go through here and see what we can garner from this. Because as I always tell you, there's always value to be found in just about any writing out there that you can find. There's something here that's worthy of consideration. Even if the bulk of it sounds nonsensical. Which with a topic like this... It's hard to get to the roots of what's true and what's false. And we have so many things going on in the news cycle that are bringing the whole extraterrestrial question into focus. Now, do the existence of beings or aircraft or things that are alleged to have been seen by people from secondhand sources and reported in that way, do they really hold a lot of credence? Generally not, but you still have to consider, just based upon the numbers of the testimonies given, that perhaps there is some core tenet that connects the dots with all of this. There is some core of truth or value to be found there. And I have found through my years of researching this topic, this topic in particular, the one relating to UFOs, extraterrestrials, things of this nature, largely what's at play is deception. Always deception, and a lot of it ties back to occult archetypes and different occult concepts. So that being the case, we always see this matter of deception, and there have been other UFO researchers in the past that have come to those conclusions as well. People like John Keel and Jacques Vallée 
John Keel wrote a book called Operation Trojan Horse, which goes a little bit further into detail about some of this deception. So these extraterrestrial beings, or whatever these things may be, whatever they present themselves as, they are not what they seem to appear to be. That's the whole notion here. There's an air of deception about all of this, and oftentimes it seems that these things manifest in a way in which it has the most impact on a human being, that it has some type of a subjective way of being interpreted by specific human beings. Different people see different aspects or different things in different ways. And a lot of what we see today as the notion that we call extraterrestrials is based upon pop culture and science fiction, the science fiction works of yesteryear. So that's where a lot of these images of extraterrestrials or aliens that we have come from. So were you to see something you can't quite understand or explain, something that may directly affect your mind or influence your mind in certain ways, how would it appear to you? Well, it might appear to you exactly how you expect it to, or it might appear to you in some other way. And this has been a phenomenon that's gone on since time immemorial. We've always, throughout all times and cultures, had unexplained encounters with entities, beings, phenomena, phenomena, lights in the sky, craft, if you will, that defy physical explanation, that defy the bounds of normalcy within cultures. So these things have been with us for a long time, and back in some of the older tales, they manifest in ways which were called the fairies or the fae folk or elementals or various other things these things have been described as various creatures, mythological creatures. We see this described all through time and culture, all described in different ways. There's different types of manifestations of this. Now, is this all the same thing? I doubt it very highly. I think there's different aspects to all of this, this experience that's related to UFOs and the appearance of aliens. So I think it goes across the whole spectrum. But what we can find as a commonality with all of this at the core of it is this notion of deception. Whatever these things are that are manifesting and appearing that we are seeing and perhaps experiencing, these things all have a deceptive nature to them. They are not what they present themselves as. They are not what they seem. So with that in mind, I want to go ahead and read this testimony here, given by Ed Kamerick in this book. And he's compiled information from various sources, alleged government and military whistleblowers that claim to have worked within the UFO programs, crash retrieval programs, communications with extraterrestrials, things like this. People who've made these claims, people who claim to know a bit of something about it and have talked about it, he's compiled this information, he's interviewed some of these people and put pen to paper and written this book about this. And this is a good primer for people if you want to get familiar with the topic that is called exopolitics. Exopolitics. 
Not a term most people are familiar with, because it hasn't really gotten any mainstream attention, but I assure you, with the things and the nonsense going on and that is in the circus of Washington, D.C., right now with these congressional hearings that this David Grush fellow and several other whistleblowers came forward with testimony and put on the congressional record once and for all that we are not alone in the universe, with all of that having happened, you're going to begin to probably hear about some form of exopolitics in the near future. In my estimation, they may begin talking about this publicly. It's kind of been discussed semi-publicly by some people, but hasn't really garnered a lot of attention because most people are still of the mindset that this seems kind of nonsensical. So like I said, exopolitics, as if regular politics isn't bad enough, right? So now we got to worry about not just the people here on Earth having disagreements and political corruption here on Earth. What happens if there's political corruption from elsewhere coming here? <laughs> you have to think about this. What if it's the Galactic Senate or something that led by the Emperor? You have to think in these ways. And we've been presented with some of these notions in science fiction. The United Federation of Planets, all of this stuff. And there are those in the field of ufology that make claims that there is some type of an organization, you know, the uh, Galactic Federation of Light or something. They, they call them all different things throughout ufology. And there's always been these types of claims. So we're going to get to some testimony here from some people who claim to know a little something. And we're going to hear a little bit about what the military's involvement and interactions have been with extraterrestrials or what's claimed to be extraterrestrials here. But keep in the back of your mind, there's always this notion of deception attached to all of this. So I do always caution you, take this stuff with a grain of salt. There's no way to really prove nor disprove this stuff, especially when you're talking about individual people's testimonies as to what they claim to have experienced or seen while working in military and government programs with this stuff. So we can't often just throw the baby out with the bathwater with all of this. I think, like I said, there may be some commonalities we find when we delve down the path that might help to further to further figure out what the true nature of this phenomenon really is. And if there is a phenomenon at all associated with it. Is everything presented human tech and human psychology? Or is there something more to it? Now, I would tend to think there is something more, something supernatural behind it all. And I would say that there's probably many very different factors involved therein. And there is psyops and human deception going on along with it, concordant with it. So it makes it very hard to trace down the true roots of what's going on. But these people claim to know. So we're going to take them at their word here tonight. We're going to do that thought exercise. And we're going to consider these things. What if it is true? What if alien beings have visited here from other worlds and our government and militaries 
have been interacting with them for some time and there are secret programs going on. What if? We're going to ask the questions here. What if? That's what this whole topic of exopolitics is all about. And that's what some of the claims that have been made are. So, perhaps at some point, you may see some of this coming to more public attention. We'll find out. Only time will tell. I don't claim to know everything or claim to be able to predict the future here. But I think it stands to reason to think with all the attention they've been giving the UAP, the renamed, renamed UFO phenomenon, lately, I think we're going to start seeing more of this notion popularized in the mainstream that perhaps there are aliens and we need to have relations with these aliens. We need to have talks and communications with these aliens. We have to consider their cultures. And perhaps we need to have some type of exchange with these beings. That may be the notion they push going forward. And we've seen all of this in the past in the annals of ufology. And that's the whole point here. All of these things that they will probably claim are true in the near future, they've all been speculated upon and talked about in the past in the circles of ufology and presented in that way. And some people are diehard true believers and some people are skeptical, and rightfully so, of all of it. And like I said, this is the type of stuff you have to really take with a grain of salt because there's no way to really prove nor disprove any of it. Because much of the testimony comes from second-hand sources. I know a guy who knows a guy who worked in the program, and this is what he said, and this is what he saw. So, that being the case, how much credence does it really have? But having put all that aside, I still like to consider this. So, let's play that what-if game. What if this is true? And think about it. What would be the implications? So, we're going to get directly into the reading here now that I've got on my little diatribe there. Military interactions with ETs, and there's a couple quotes here to start out this portion of the book we're reading from. The first quote is from five-star General Douglas MacArthur, 1955. Quote, The next war will be an interplanetary war. The nations must someday make a common front against attack by people from other planets. End quote. Douglas MacArthur. <laughs> That's something, isn't it? I've heard that quote attributed to Douglas MacArthur before this as well, from different sources as this. Did he really say it? I don't know. Maybe he did. And if he did, seems that it's been recorded. And is he right? That's the other question. Who can say for sure? The next quote here is attributed to President Harry S. Truman, and he says, quote, I can assure you that flying saucers, given that they exist, are not constructed by any power on Earth, end quote. So that was Truman, the one who had his hands in all of it at the very beginning of the modern UFO era. President Truman. The next quote here comes from the five-term U.S. Senator and Major General Barry Goldwater. And he said, quote, It is true that I was denied access to a facility at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. Because I never got in, I can't tell you what was inside. We both know about the rumors concerning a captured UFO and crew members. I have never seen what I would call a UFO, but I have intelligent friends who have, end quote. So Goldwater 
was very interested in the UFO topic. And he went looking around, and they denied him access to many of the places he didn't have need to know. And, of course, this happens to very many. He was interested in a lot of this stuff. And we have very many politicians who are interested in these programs, along with Barry Goldwater. And they get denied access. We see this all the time in a lot of these stories. So the next quote here is attributed to NASA astronaut John Glenn. So John Glenn said this, quote, Back in those glory days, I was very uncomfortable when they asked us to say things we didn't want to say and deny other things. Some people asked, You know, were you alone out there? We never gave the real answer, and yet we see things out there, strange things, but we know what we saw out there. And we couldn't really say anything. The bosses were really afraid of this. They were afraid of the War of the Worlds type stuff and about panic in the streets. So we had to keep quiet. And now we only see these things in our nightmares or maybe in the movies. And some of them are pretty close to being the truth. End quote. So that was John Glenn. Think about that. John Glenn making these claims now. I have my my doubts about NASA <laughs> and the whole entire astronaut program and the Apollo program and all of that. In my view, folks, I don't think we've ever been able to get out of low Earth orbit. That's just my take based upon the evidence I've seen and based upon the strange things that have happened surrounding all of the footage and the data of the greatest accomplishment humankind has ever made, landing on the moon. It's all gone, all the original data. You know, it, it was erased by accident. Oopsie. They lost all the original film. They taped over the original film. Oops. <laughs> now, who messed that up? That is the equivalent of, uh, like, taping over your wedding video to uh, record WrestleMania or something on there. Uh, so, <laughs> who did this? Who's responsible for that? This is what they claim at NASA, okay? They lost all the original footage of the moon landings, the entire Apollo program. They lost all the telemetry data, all of that data. That's all gone, all gone. Lost the blueprints for the Saturn V. They can't build that anymore. They lost all the technology to do that. And yet, they want us to believe that with the $90 million per day, that's right, $90 million per day that NASA gets, well, they're going to be sending man to the moon again very soon in the Artemis program. They want us to believe that. I'm skeptical. They've been using a lot of bad CGI as of late, even though their budget is massive to CGI this stuff. But I digress on that fact. The, the mere claim here by John Glenn, was he just playing his part by making these spurious statements, these cryptic statements? To get the mind of the people hooked on the idea. Yeah, they've really been up there to space and they encountered stuff. Well, that's what they would like us to believe. And that's kind of the notion that's given here. And that's kind of the inclination of the author of this book. That this is the true nature of things. That yes, man's been to space and we went there. And the reason why we haven't gone back to the moon is because we encountered aliens there. And they didn't want us there. So we were kind of treading very lightly, and everything went into secret programs with a lot of this. 
let's go ahead and let's let's do the the reading here. We'll get into the heart of the reading here now. Now that we got those couple quotes out of the way that he began this portion of the book with, and we'll get to some of the claims. And of course, I will go ahead and pause frequently and give my thoughts on this because I do like to offer the counterpoint and offer some insights that I may have garnered in looking at all of this stuff for many years. And we'll see. I do like to consider these things. I like to keep an open mind, but not so open that my brain falls out, if you catch my drift there. Uh, so I do like to look at this type of information and entertain the idea. So that's what we're doing here. So let's get right into the reading. And he says here, The thing to understand about life is that environmental conditions are always changing, and all creatures have to adapt to these changing conditions, else they suffer or even die. I am discovering that this is just as true for extraterrestrial beings with advanced technology as it is for us, the indigenous human species of Earth. Retired Air Force Airman Charles Hall has written extensively about a species of human extraterrestrial called the Tall Whites, who occupy and maintain a base in the mountains now encompassed by Nellis Air Force Base. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. The Tall Whites. The Tall Whites. We're going to get into some of the details about perhaps some of the various alien races that may be visiting us. And Charles Hall, if you've never read anything he's put out, he goes into a lot of detail. He claims to have had a lot of experiences with these tall whites. And he's made a lot of claims. And the amount of detail is kind of staggering if it's somebody who's just trying to maybe fake this. And his story hasn't really ever changed. His narrative hasn't really ever changed about it. But it's always just, oh yeah, I, I, I've encountered these people, had experiences with them. These alien beings... And he presents no actual physical proof or anything of the sort. Just his testimony. And there are others who have made claims about these beings that they call the tall whites in the circles of ufology. So it's worth considering and considering the notion now with this latest narrative that we've seen with the whole David Grush disclosure in Congress... And everything surrounding that. And do you remember just prior to David Grush coming forward into the mainstream news cycle, we had this story in Las Vegas where this guy allegedly had giant aliens, 10-foot-tall aliens, land in his backyard. And a, a fireball fell from the sky on film, on police footage and stuff like that. They saw that and captured that. And they took this seriously, the 9-11 call about aliens in the guy's backyard. They were giant aliens, tall aliens, if you will, somewhere between 8 and 10 feet tall. And that, you'll see, as we continue on, kind of fits the description of these tall white beings. So it doesn't surprise me in the least. They might go that route again. And, of course, this is an archetype. This is an archetype which harkens back to... The notion of the Titans, or the clash of the Titans. The mythology of the Titans, the Titanomachy, as, as it's called in the Greek mythology. Where the Olympians overtook the Titans, and 
The Titans were imprisoned in Tartarus. Tartarus. But let's go ahead. We'll read on here. So the claim here he makes about these tall whites is that they maintain a base in the mountains that now are encompassed by Nellis Air Force Base. So they have, I guess, an underground base in the mountain ranges in and around Nellis Air Force Base. This is the claims made here by Charles Hall and conveyed here by Ed Kamarik in this book. Let's go ahead and read on, because he talked to Charles Hall personally, and he's telling you here what Charles said. So he goes on and he says, Charles told me personally that the extraterrestrial species known as the Greys occupy and maintain a base larger than the tall white base at Area 55, also on Nellis. Well, a very human type of ET with 24 teeth have a base near a fjord in Norway. Charles claims to have met all three types in his life. Nellis is the home of the world-renowned Area 51 that is now part of global popular culture. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Global popular culture. Area 51. Yes, it is there. Now, the claim here is that these tall whites have a base at Area 55, <laughs> which I guess is, you know, uh, for... Four clicks north of uh, Area 51 or some such thing. I don't know. <laughs> this is four better than Area 51. So, it's, you know, uh, they must be have some better technology or something there. It's, it's better than Area 51. It's Area 55. And 55, of course, don't miss the occult connotation of the double numbers always with this stuff. 55. So the claim is also made that the Greys occupy a larger base at Area 55. And that, also, there's a very human-looking type of ET that has bases in Norway, but they have 24 teeth. So I guess that's how you would identify them. Hey, open your mouth. Uh, let me see how many teeth you have. Uh, they have 24 teeth. That, that's what's being said here. Uh, so, Norway. So we have this, this Charles Hall fellow has made claims that he's met in his lifetime all three of these types of aliens, the greys, the tall whites, and these Nordic types. I'm assuming they're Nordics with the 24 teeth because they do have a base in Norway, and we've had these things described to us in the Annals of Ufology for a long time now. And, of course, you notice the connection to popular culture here mentioned with the renown of Area 51 of course. But let's read on. So he says here that later on, in later chapters of this book, which he, he does go into more detail, he says he'll go into more detail about the nature of other E.T. races, like the Tall Whites and the Greys, along with the supporting case history. He says he has found Charles Hall's claims compelling because of the detail and the fact that there are many additional witnesses to the Tall Whites. These other cases are completely separate from the Hall case. These people came forward before and after he published his books and did interviews. He says here, this is Ed Kamarik speaking, he says, I even traveled to Indiana Springs, or sorry, Indian Springs, Nevada, in the spring of 2011 and found a couple more of cases while investigating. I feel too many contactee investigators are getting duped and are having their credibility undermined by false contactees because they go out way out on a limb in support of an individual without this kind of collaborating testimony and evidence. 
gonna pause for a moment here folks i don't think he's wrong about this i think there are a lot of false claims made by alleged contactees and i think perhaps some of these contactees well they're experiencing something different because like i said the whole nature of this becomes very subjective because it does have this notion of deception behind it and your personal bias may play into that deception so maybe they are telling you what they believe to be true or what they have experienced and it doesn't match up to other accounts and it doesn't mean they may not have had these experiences it's just that this experience is subjective and it was tailor-made to deceive that particular person in a certain way present itself to a particular person in a particular way and that's the nature of this that's been discovered by people that study this phenomena for a long time. Like I said, John Keel came to similar conclusions. Jacques Vallée came to similar conclusions. That this is not what it seems. And toward the end of their lives and careers, and or careers, they came to the conclusion that... The extraterrestrial hypothesis is not the most likely one for this. There's something else going on. It seems intrinsically linked to mankind. This is what conclusions they came to through their research. It's intrinsically linked to mankind. It's something that may be native to here, where we are, or some different dimension or plane here. They may be ultra terrestrial or from other dimensions they may be dimensional or some such thing this is this is the conclusions that many of the researchers have come to and i don't disagree with that because of this deception factor that's involved that is the common link between all of these types of encounters that we've seen recorded through the years but this here that's being presented by Comeric in this book is slightly different because this is the testimony of people who claim to have been involved in military military industrial complex programs working with these alien beings so the claims made here tend to be a little bit more tailor-made for something else so let's continue reading and we'll see if we could maybe get to the bottom of what's being presented here maybe we could learn a little something here and like i said it's good to entertain these ideas play the little thought experiment what if it's true what if this is the true nature of what's going on and many people have bought into that narrative that this is the true nature of what's going on because it does make a lot of sense at times but remember that deception factor is always at play with this and it's hard to get to the brass tacks of what is true and what is false with many of these narratives. So that being the case, let's go ahead. We'll read on here. So he says, Charles Hall claims that the tall whites base in the Nevada desert predates for hundreds of years modern human activity on this planet. 
He has stated that he believed that the tall white base was there at least since the time Madison was president of the United States because his female tall white teacher had mentioned that the tall whites have watched the wagon trains roll through the Nevada desert. They had a front row seat for their small Nevada base. And from the Spring Mountains, looking down on Indian Springs and Vegas as ranchers and miners began to settle the area. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So Charles Hall claims to have been taught things by these tall white beings. One of them was his teacher, a female tall white, was his teacher and told him that they've been there for a long time. They watched the old wagon trains come rolling through and the old settlers of the West come in. And, of course, comfortably from a distance, they watch this. So, <laughs> unless, of course, maybe something happened like that, uh, that uh, cinematic masterpiece, Cowboys and Aliens. If you've, if you've ever seen that one, Cowboys and Aliens. Uh, <laughs> I just have to laugh at some of this stuff. I'm sorry. Maybe there's, maybe there's a kernel of truth here. Maybe this is true. I want to entertain the idea that, yes, this is true. But you see so many bad science fiction movies and stuff made based off of some of these notions that it becomes, well, laughable. And I think that's all part of the psyoping of some of these things as well. So that being the case, so this, this is the claim. So Charles White claims to have had communication, quite a bit of communication with these tall white beings and knows that they've been there for a long time, predating human civilizations out there in the West they watched the rag wagon trains come rolling through. So, let's read on here. According to Charles, the tall whites live about 800 years, and his teacher had grown up in the region. For this reason, this area of the United States was very dear to her heart, as the tall whites spend a lot of their R&R time in the desert and nearby Spring Mountains in the summer. This getting out and about helps account for the fact that we have all this collaborating testimony from people who have encountered them in the desert and in Nevada towns. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So the tall whites, they go wandering out <laughs> into the desert and into the mountains. They love going to, to do that. So apparently their lifespan, they live about 800 years, according to Charles Hall here. And they like the desert and the mountains. They're near and dear to their heart. Let's read on. Interestingly, Charles has said that the Greys and the Tall Whites don't get along and are in a kind of long-standing Cold War, even though their bases in Nevada are not that far from each other. There also is a lot of intense speculation in the UFO field that the Greys have a biological research facility underground near Dulce, New Mexico, where they treat us like lab animals. But there is so much disinformation involved in this controversy, it's hard for me to determine if this is true. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. We've all heard stories about these underground bases near Dulce, New Mexico, where the aliens are cloning people and doing all sorts of wild experiments, making hybrid creatures. And we've heard the horror stories of some of that if you've been following the ufology field for any length of time sounds like some bad science fiction narratives interesting stuff for sure and then of course there were whistleblowers alleged whistleblowers who came forward with fantastic stories of underground bases and alien battles 
like Phil Schneider. If you haven't ever looked up Phil Schneider, look up Phil Schneider. He's long since passed. I think he uh, died back in the 1990s sometime under mysterious circumstances. But he said a lot of things. He was an engineer who claims to have worked on these deep underground military bases and encountered aliens and actually had a firefight with aliens at one point and lost a portion of his hand and had various scars and wounds from that. So, interesting stuff. Don't know what to make of the guy's testimony, but this is just one of the pieces of the puzzle here that this may harken back to. So we have this Dulce base that's alleged in ufology culture. To be there, to be a place where horrific experiments go on, well, according to this Charles Hall guy, that might be a base of the alien greys, which is not far from the base of these tall whites. And, of course, they're at odds with one another, because why wouldn't they be, right? So, anyway, let's read on here. So then, Comeric goes on here to say, Against this backdrop, let's move forward a bit to 1947. In 1947, the American military had a top-secret Army Air Force base at Roswell that was active during World War II with the only atomic bomb wing stationed there. Some investigators believe that by this time, the American military and top governmental officials already had the remains of at least one extraterrestrial crash that happened in the early 1940s. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. And I think that would be referring to the Cape Girardeau, Missouri incident, if I'm not mistaken. That's probably what he's referring to here. Uh, I do reserve the right to be wrong about that because I haven't looked at what he claims here. There's footnotes, but I'm not looking into the footnotes here. They're at the end of the book. So that's what he claims. So he claims that uh, perhaps they retrieved extraterrestrial bodies and technologies earlier in the 1940s. And there's many claims, and one of the claims that came out from this David Grush fellow is that the Vatican has known about this, and they had collected a saucer crash and extraterrestrial bodies back in 1933 when it crashed somewhere in Italy. That's the claims. So we have all this stuff coming forward. There's nothing new under the sun, folks. All this stuff has been circulating in the field of ufology for many years, and there are bits and pieces of compelling evidence that may point to perhaps some of these crash retrieval type events. But uh, they're spurious at best, and it's always secondhand information, and there's never any actual hard physical evidence to present in that way, to really 100% solidify it as a fact. And the documentation is always missing as well. Or it's classified or some such thing, or at least that's the claim, and maybe there is no documentation, who knows? All I know is the intelligence community and the military intelligence community, they got all of their tactics and all of their methodologies directly from the secret society groups. And if you know anything about the secret society groups, you know that the most important stuff never makes it into writing. It only gets communicated verbally from teacher to student. So the same type of thing probably goes on from one person in the know to another. They're only told this verbally under the strictest confidence not to reveal the secret. 
Probably the same type of thing goes on with this type of information. So there may be no written records to be found of some of these alleged things if they were to indeed happen, which makes it very difficult to really study it or give any credence to it, doesn't it? Because if the evidence is not there, if they don't leave evidence, if they purposely cover their tracks and try to be sure not to leave evidence behind to keep the secrets to themselves and therefore hold and wield the power, then it's going to be very hard to find evidence if they've done everything to cover their tracks. So that's what goes on in military intelligence with a lot of this stuff. They've gone to extreme measures to keep a lot of these things hidden and locked up in special access programs. Black budget programs off the books directed by private industry, private corporations. Therefore, much of the things being studied fall under the auspices of what's called proprietary information and therefore does not need to be disclosed under the Freedom of Information Act. So anybody who's seeking information on some of these crash retrievals and technologies that may have been reverse engineered, this kind of thing, you're likely not going to find anything in officialdom, and any FOIA request you make is probably going to come back empty because all of this is hidden within the compartmentalization of corporation, subcontractors, military subcontractors that do the work, the bulk of the work, keep the secrets, have the intelligence clearances, all the top secret clearances, all of this stuff, kept it hidden away in compartmentalized programs where you don't have access if you don't have need to know. And this is kept from the prying eyes of Congress as well. So if these kind of things are really going on, and I suspect there is something, some kind of secret technology being developed, I don't know the nature or origins of that technology, but these things are being hidden in this fashion, and it does kind of lend credence to some of the stories and perhaps some of the claims. But these are some of the claims made by people who claim to know. This Charles Hall claims to know, claims to have been in communication with these extraterrestrial beings and had direct interactions with them for some time, had personal relationships with them. And these are the things he claims, these are the things that he's told Comeric, and these are the things that Comeric has tried to verify through other witnesses. He's interviewed a number of people, as we'll see here, who make some of these claims. And some of the corroboration comes forward, so we'll see. Like I said, I always like to consider these things and keep an open mind, but not so open my brain falls out, and that's the key. But let's continue on. It would appear that the Germans may have recovered a crash in 1938, and because of this head start, were further ahead in research and development of exotic electromagnetic or electrogravitic technologies than the United States. This would soon change when the Germans lost the war and lost their top scientists to Russia and the U.S., along with the accumulated information on these advanced technologies. I'm going to pause for a moment. Of course, he's referring to Project Paperclip or Operation Paperclip, as many of you have come to know in, in 
you know, most likely you have come to know or have heard about. Sometimes huge shifts in society are triggered by relatively small acts by one or several individuals. World War I was triggered by an assassination, and an international incident between the U.S. and Iran was triggered when some hikers strayed into Iranian territory several years ago. When I was in Roswell in the spring of 2011 and interviewed contactee and military whistleblower Clifford Stone, he had an interesting story to tell me. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. If you've never looked up Clifford Stone, go ahead and look him up, too. He was an integral part of, of the Disclosure Project by Dr. Stephen Greer back in 2001 when they had their meeting at the National Press Club in Washington. And he's the guy that leaned forward on the table and said as of his involvement in the program sometime in the mid to late 1980s, they had documented 57 different species of extraterrestrials that they were aware of. And thus they... they commonly nicknamed this within these military programs, the Heinz 57 variety, making a joke of it. So these are some of the claims made by Clifford Stone. I don't know about the guy's um, integrity or if he's telling the truth or not, or if he's an intelligence agent purposely putting out disinformation, or if he's sincere and was really involved in the things he claimed, because he claimed to be part of the program where he would go to these crash retrieval sites and he would be the one who was the, what would you say, the, the translator for the aliens because I guess he claims to be uh, in some way empathic or psychic in some way where he has the, he's able to easily, more easily communicate with these beings and this was, you know, one of the reasons why he was flagged for this program. So these are the kind of claims this guy makes. So, uh, Kamarik interviewed him here, too, and that's what he's talking about. So, whistleblower Clifford Stone. Let's hear what Clifford Stone has to say. So, he says here, Clifford has networked with both military and extraterrestrials over a lifetime, so even as a civilian, he stays well-informed about these matters. Unknown to Clifford several months earlier, there was a mention in the senior research engineer Boyd Bushman interview where Boyd told that a friend of his said he shot down the craft that crashed at Roswell. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So once again, if you've studied the UFO field for any length of time, you may have heard some of these names. Boyd Bushman. Boyd Bushman was indeed an engineer that worked for Lockheed Skunk Works, and he made a couple stunning claims on camera in interviews, and his deathbed confession... He claimed that there were aliens, and they were reverse engineering alien craft, and he had photographs and everything he showed in this last interview he'd ever done shortly before his death. And he made claims, and he stud stuck behind these claims for some length of time, and he actually described some of the alternative physics that is known behind the scenes, at least portions of it, on camera in interviews. So that's who's being being talked about here, Boyd Bushman. And he said, and I saw this in one of the interviews he had done, that he knew a guy involved in the program of the Roswell crash and what had happened, according to the claims of Bushman, and I don't know if uh, Kamarik's going to get to that here or not, but one, one of the claims was is they, they were developing some 
new type of lock-on radar. And they discovered, quite by accident, that using this lock-on radar somehow disrupted the electrogravitic or electromagnetic propulsion systems of these UFO craft that the aliens were flying around with. So they were able to use it to actually lock on and shoot these things down. So that's the claim here made. He claimed that the Roswell event, well, he knew a guy involved in the secret program, and they shot it down. That's what happened to the craft. So that's the claim being alluded to here. So let's go ahead and we'll continue reading, though. So Kamarik says, I really perked up my ears when Clifford began to tell me what he had pieced together from his military contacts. Some of Clifford's contacts must have been in contact with the gray extraterrestrials themselves to get their side of the story. Clifford claims to have known personally several types of ETs. Clifford told me, that there was not just one craft that went down near Roswell, but three. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. I've heard different variations of this story, too, told throughout ufology, the circles of ufology from various people. So, I don't know what to make of this. Does that mean because several people corroborate this story that there's something to it? Well, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. It could be an intelligence agency operation, disinformation program where they have several people out there pushing this story. There might be nothing true about it. I have my reservations about the whole Roswell thing to begin with. I don't think uh, what came down there was necessarily what we're being told, but I also don't think it's what we're <laughs> has been speculated about and turned into a modern mythology. So, hard to say for sure. But so here's the claim. So now Clifford Stone claims that the craft that came down in Roswell was not one craft, but three. So let's continue on. The first craft went down because of mechanical and communication problems. There is debate in the UFO field as to if more than one craft crashed because of mechanical failure caused by lightning, or because the craft ran into a high-power military radar that adversely affected the craft's navigation system. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Well, why don't we just, you know, argue to the fact of whether something actually crashed or not? I mean, so it, rather than coming jumping to the conclusion, yes, a UFO crashed, but it could have been brought down by lightning or it could have been a radar weapon. Um, why not just, you know, say, did, did, did this really crash? Was there really something there? Was it a weather balloon? Was it a mogul balloon, as the official statement of the U.S. government has been? Or was there something more to it? Hard to say, and you see how getting caught on these, in these ways of thinking, you don't want to believe the official narrative. Well, here's an alternative narrative for you. It wasn't a mogul weather balloon, certainly not, so it had to be an extraterrestrial craft that came down. So the question then is, well, what happened to it? Why did it come down? Was it mechanical failure? Did it get hit by lightning because there were lightning storms in that area? Or was it a radar weapon pointed at it so you get to a lot of speculative type stuff here really when it comes down to it when you veer into that type of way of thinking but let's go ahead like i said we'll entertain the notion here let's continue reading here so Comeric goes on to say from the documents of the period there is no doubt that the military was tracking these craft by radar at the time Perhaps what may have happened was that one or more greys had taken a little excursion out into the New Mexico desert 
perhaps even from their base that Charles claims exists at Area 55 at Nellis. According to Clifford, when the craft lost communication, two other craft were quickly sent out to find out what happened and rescue the occupants if they were still alive. If I remember correctly, Clifford said that in one of the craft were experienced adults, but in the other craft were inexperienced gray children or teenagers. Okay, I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. And so it's the kids on a wild joyride. They stole the car. <laughs> they went and they crashed it in the friggin' desert. Way to go, kids. We... <laughs> you can't make this stuff up, folks. <laughs> this, is what they, this is what they talk about in ufology. This is where we've come now. Okay, Roswell, the Roswell event. It was a couple of crazy teenage greys out there. They took mom's car and they went and they crashed it in the desert. So they went to rescue them. Let's entertain the idea for a little bit further. Let's go on here and we'll continue reading. So Comeric says here, I figure that a recovery only a few years previously would have not been that difficult for the greys because the technological capabilities of the U.S. military would have been very limited. There would not have been radar to track the craft, and the human population would have been smaller because many people had not yet moved into the desert who could report a crash. Clifford said that he had been told that these two rescue craft had lowered their protective fields and were flying in close formation in order to better search for the suspected downed craft. At this time, a military craft came upon these two craft and asked base to be allowed to shoot them down. It may have been vectored into the area, with all three craft being tracked by radar, but Clifford did not mention this, if memory serves me. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So they put down their shields, their force fields, and they flew in close, because I guess you can't fly close if you have your force field on. Uh, to look for the, the wreckage and you know it makes perfect sense for them to both fly close together when you know they're searching a broad area for a crashed vessel of some sort wouldn't it make more sense to kind of split up and one cover one sector and one cover the other rather than flying side by side like this and I, I digress on that point though but uh, at any rate let's let's continue on i'll let you make a, a judgment on that by, by yourself i'll let you use your discernment with that all right, so he says here, The Greys in their two ships were following these transmissions, and when the pilot got the order to shoot, the inexperienced Greys in one of the craft panicked and powered up their craft too close to the other. This caused one craft to come down right away, which must have been at the exact time as Bushman's friend fired at the craft, thinking he shot it down. Now pause for a moment here, folks. Okay, so... The radar weapon, well, that's, of course, that's ridiculous to think that that would be able to shoot down an alien spacecraft. It, no, it must have been just at the wrong time that the other alien craft activated its repulsor field or something and accidentally knocked the other one down just within perfect timing of this radar. So, <laughs> ah, man, it never ends. So just when you thought the whole Roswell narrative couldn't get any more ridiculous, guess what? And here's the, the kicker part, folks. People actually believe this to be true and that this might have been what really happened there. There are people in the field of ufology that absolutely buy this narrative 100% with no evidence that this is the case at all. Nothing to back this up except for this guy's claim. So 
let's read on here. So you see the alien teenagers, I guess I guess they weren't the ones that crashed mom's car. There was some other one that crashed. So the alien teenagers were in one of these craft, these two search vessel craft, if I'm following this right now, that went looking for the, the first crashed one. And they panicked because, you know, they're, they're teenagers. They haven't, they didn't have any experience yet. So, of course, they went ahead and accidentally fired up, <laughs> powered up their craft too close to the other one. Yeah, so, <laughs> so that, that's the claim here. So, it says here, let's continue reading from where we left off there. So, it says, the other ET craft traveled quite a distance before it too went down. Clifford said that the craft had not been shot down, as had been assumed by Boyd Bushman's friend. going to pause for a moment there, folks. So there's a contradiction. So this guy is actually using these two disparate claims uh, to reinforce the idea, even though they are opposing in nature. They disagree, so they don't really confirm one another in any way, shape, or form, do they? But he's using these to try to shoehorn the mind into accepting, yeah, there were alien craft, multiple ones, and, uh, you know, maybe they didn't really get shot down, but uh, certainly they, they for real came down, right? Anyway, let's continue on. I would assume that such a series of accidents, a perfect storm, put the greys into turmoil and meant that they did not have craft in the area to recover the bodies and craft because the area was now crawling with U.S. military. This seems to have been an unmitigated disaster for the Greys, creating a real turning point of history. These crashes galvanized the military and top political leaders into action, and the National Security Act of 1947 was signed in September, creating the CIA, NSA, and MJ-12, the organization to coordinate ET activities for the U.S. government and private corporations. Going to pause for a moment there, folks. MJ-12 has still to this day never been confirmed to have existed in this form. There were different committees, scientific advisory committees, that were put together, perhaps, that this notion is loosely based upon. But we do have the foundation of the CIA and NSA in 1947. And of course these were holdovers from the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, prior it morphed into the CIA. So we have that, that historical document. So, of course, this gets weaved into the tale, just like everything else, because, of course, you know, 1947 was a pivotal year for a lot of this stuff. And like I said, that falls into the category of the whole deception notion that is central to all of it. Deception. So we have this now. So now the claim here is, I guess this was disastrous for the Greys. Oh, it made them look so bad. They crashed three ships in one day there in Roswell. And, of course, the stupid humans had to come along, and they ruined everything. And, you know, we can't go recover our brethren when the humans are there, right? <laughs> you know, this all-powerful alien race that comes here. They can fly across interstellar space to come here and crash in the desert. And what do they do? They come here and they build bases underground and they steal cows. It makes total sense, doesn't it? <laughs> anyway, let's continue reading here. So it says here, 
By the end of the 1950s, official contact seems to have been established with several extraterrestrial races, including the Nordics, Greys, and the Tall Whites at Nellis Air Force Base. Nellis Air Force Base was built to encompass at least two ET bases. Charles Hall talks about the creation of Nellis in his four books. He entered into the picture in the early 1960s when our government and the Tall Whites were still in the very early stages of developing relations in an environment of extreme distrust and paranoia. Charles also told me personally that he had met a very scary gray adult in the desert and others, including young grays, who were not so scary at Area 55. going to pause for a moment here, folks. I guess the kids aren't so scary, the teenage ones. They're, they're just kind of goofy. It's the adult ones that get a little creepy. It's like the grumpy old man syndrome. Get off my lawn! I could picture an alien gray yelling, get off my lawn! Right? <laughs> so this is what you have. So... I guess there was a lot of paranoia early on. I guess the aliens distrusted us, and we distrusted the aliens. Uh, so, anyway, you, you can kind of see what's going on here. But we're going to let them build bases here anyway. Um, or they already had their bases, and we're just going to build a base around that, right? So, <laughs> anyway, I digress. Let's read on here. There is considerable evidence for extraterrestrial crashes beginning as early as 1936 in Germany and the early 1940s in the United States. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. And according to David Grush, 1933 in Italy. But this guy doesn't mention that. So, <laughs> you know, back at that time, I guess that wasn't one of the popular ones being jockeyed around the ufology community. Let's continue on. So it says here, it was not until the end of World War II that the United States and its allies could really begin to focus on the problem and began interactions in earnest with extraterrestrial civilizations. In the 1950s, serious compartmentalization, secrecy, and propagandizing of the public was so pronounced that one part of the government often was not aware of what another part was doing in regard to integration into extraterrestrial reality. Only MJ-12 knew the whole story. It was at this juncture that President Eisenhower realized that the whole thing was getting out of constitutional control and into the hands of the military-industrial complex. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So Eisenhower's speech about the military-industrial complex, that's what he's referring to. And, of course, they've always connected the idea of extraterrestrials to this in the ufology community. And perhaps there was some type of reverse engineering of something going on. But we really don't know the true nature of it. And we don't know if, quote-unquote, aliens really had anything to do with it. Or not. But we do know that the intelligence, military intelligence community, ingratiated itself into all levels of society and governance and government and began to take the power away from the official Congress, from those officials that are claimed to be the ones who write our laws and enforce our laws and pass judgments upon our laws. 
the legislature, the judiciary, and the executive branch. These people, well, they don't have any real power. This has all been handed over to military-industrial complex interests, the corporatocracy. All of these things, and this is where it's claimed to have really earnestly begun, and Eisenhower warned us of it. And at least this is always the claim you get from this, especially in the ufology community, and they always have to attach the notion of flying saucers with it. And I don't think it's necessarily off-base to do so. I think perhaps there were technologies being developed based upon this that were very secretive, that perhaps Eisenhower had some knowledge of and was trying to give good warning about before he left office. I don't know for sure. I don't know if he was part of the game. And he was feeding us this to further promote this idea that would deflect blame from government for certain things or not. Hard to say what the true nature of all of it is. Did he have good intentions? I don't know. I don't know. I suspect maybe he did. Maybe it did get out of control on him. And he was trying to warn the people in a subtle way as best he could. And we know what happened after that, once Eisenhower left office. But at any rate, let's continue reading. So now, Comeric makes reference to what he calls the Fontes Briefing. The Fontes Briefing gives a good general overview of what some global governments knew about the extraterrestrial presence. But it would seem that direct contact and negotiations were already ongoing between political and military leaders by 1955. This is evidenced by information that has leaked into the public domain regarding the then United States President Eisenhower's contact and negotiations with more than one extraterrestrial civilization. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So now he's alluding to the notion, the story that Eisenhower, while on vacation one day, he had an emergency visit to the dentist where he was missing for like a day or two, and he was whisked away to a secret base where he met with aliens and formulated a pact with aliens and signed a treaty with aliens. This is a popular story through the annals of ufology. Is there any truth to it? I doubt it. But this is always something that gets alluded to. Maybe there was something to it. I'm not one to say for sure. But what we do have as evidence for it is a spurious letter by a guy named Gerald Light, who was somewhat of a charlatan. But he claimed to have been present for this event. And that is one of the things that we do have disclosed in the public record alluding to this fact that maybe Eisenhower did have secret meetings with extraterrestrials. Hard to say. Hard to say if it's true or if it's just a fabricated thing put out there just to get the mind hook in place for people to latch on to the extraterrestrial narrative. But let's continue reading here because now we're going to see that Comeric here goes more into this Fontes briefing. So he says here, The following statistics tend to support parts of the Fontes briefing. Researcher Colin Andrews states, quote, Now here we go. This is So now this researcher is citing another researcher. 
who's citing someone else. It, this is always good. Another researcher. So a researcher said that this researcher said that this researcher said. Let's let's go that way. So quote. So now researcher Colin Andrews states quote. Timothy Good tells me that in his revised paperback version of his book, Need to Know, that the U.S. Defense Department statistics record in just four years, 1952 to 1956, the United States Air Force and Navy had lost in crashes a total of 18,662 aircraft, of which 1,773 were caused by unknown factors destruction or disappearance of military aircraft during interceptions of UFOs continued apace, end quote. General Benjamin Chidlaw, former commanding general of Air Defense Command, told Robert C. Gardner, ex-U.S. Air Force, in 1953, quote, We have stacks of reports of flying saucers. We take them seriously when you consider. We have lost many men and planes trying to intercept them. Furthermore, the former Air Force intelligence officer and UFO researcher Leonard Stringfield was told by a reliable source in the 1950s that the Air Force was losing about a plane a day to UFOs. And that's the end of the quote here of Colin Andrews, who's quoting Timothy Good, who's quoting Benjamin Chidlaw, who's quoting Robert C. Gardner, who's quoting Leonard Stringfield, who's quoting an unknown, reliable source. <laughs> yeah, yep, yeah, did, did you get all that? I don't want to have to repeat that. So, so this is the evidence that we have. So this absolutely 100% proves, in no uncertain terms to me, that Eisenhower met with aliens then, right? <laughs> Sorry, I'm having a little fun with this one tonight. Um, like I said, I, I do want to entertain the idea i very much like to entertain these ideas i want to believe right don't we all want to believe on some level i want to believe wouldn't it be cool if that was the true nature of things like there were these extraterrestrial planets that had life and these beings were visiting here and they have these flying saucer craft that could travel through space at unprecedented speeds and go wherever and do whatever have all these massive technologies and we could learn about their cultures and all kind of cool stuff like that. Be like Star Trek, right? That'd be really cool. But uh, instead, we're losing an airplane a day, according to this source that knew this source, that knew this other source, that went from this other source that said that he knew a guy who said this. <laughs> but he was a reliable guy. Uh, <laughs> sorry. All right, let's continue on. I... I, I I don't want to get too far afoul here. I do want to cover a little more ground before we sign off here tonight. By the late 1950s and early 1960s, when Airman Charles Hall became involved with a human extraterrestrial race called the Tall Whites, it became apparent from the testimony of Charles Hall and others that there was now active cooperation with at least two extraterrestrial races, the Tall Whites and those known as the Greys, who were not human. It makes sense to me that contact was established with these races first because it appears that these two ET bases were not that secure and that the ETs might want to cooperate with our military for purposes of trade and security. 
Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. Okay, so these secret ET bases that had existed for years, they weren't very secure. <laughs> okay. That makes okay, it makes total sense now. Anyway. <laughs> so so they think it might be beneficial. We should trade with the humans and maybe have them protect us because you know, we can't protect ourselves. Um uh, Let's read on here. So he says, I am not sure if there was cooperation with those human ETs known as the Nordics, because it would appear from one Eisenhower meeting that the military generals would not accept some of the conditions required by these human extraterrestrials for cooperation. Charles Hall also talks of another blonde race that he calls the Norwegians with 24 teeth who maintain a base up a fjord in Norway, and I would assume that there might be some cooperation here with the Norwegian authorities as the base. That base also might be a small forward operating base like that manned by the tall whites. In fact, Charles said that this race's deep space capabilities were not as advanced as the tall whites. UFO ET investigators in Norway might check Norwegian military bases and UFO sightings to see if they could pinpoint such an ET base surrounded by Norwegian military bases with a fjord within its borders. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So, anybody out there know about any Norwegian military bases in a fjord? That there's a lot of UFO sightings about? No? Well, me either, Mel. So, <laughs> what does that tell you? Maybe there's nothing to this at all, but uh, who knows? Oh, those wacky Norwegian aliens. They look just like us. We wouldn't even know, right? They're just blonde. They have 24 teeth, though, so that's how you could tell. Get their dental records. Uh, anyway, I digress on that. Let's re go ahead and continue on here. So, he says here, I intend to get into this later in more detail in further chapters. But for now, let's first start this chapter with the Fontes briefing and other briefings to give the reader an idea of the overall context of military interactions over time with several ET races. Dr. Olavel T. Fontes from Brazil was a prominent and respected UFO researcher in the 1950s. He was given an informal briefing by two American intelligence officials that he wrote up in a letter of February 27, 1958. The briefing clearly details the paranoid military mindset and the degree of military understanding in regards to extraterrestrial reality in the late 1950s. This briefing states, quote, Here's what the things that the briefing states, allegedly. So this is a briefing from a prominent Brazilian UFO researcher named Fontes, or this is what he claims anyway, so two American intelligence officials gave him this information. I guess these are unnamed intelligence officials. Make of that what you will. <laughs> Apply your discernment here how you will. So he says, now this is from, from Dr. Olavo T. Fontes, Brazilian ufologist. He says, number one, they told me that all governments and military authorities through the world know that flying saucers exist and that they are craft from another planet. They have absolute proof of both things. <laughs> okay, so these military guys told him this. That must make it true. These anonymous intelligence operatives, right? 
And he says, number two, as a matter of fact, six flying discs already crashed on this earth and were captured and taken apart by military forces and scientists of the countries involved under the most rigid and ruthless security restrictions to keep the matter absolutely secret. One of those discs crashed in the Sahara Desert, but was much, was too much destroyed to be of some use. Three others crashed in the United States, two of them in very good condition. The fifth crashed somewhere in the British Islands, and the last one came down at one of the Scandinavian countries. These two were almost undamaged, too. All these six discs were small craft, 32, 72, or 99 feet in diameter. In all of them were found bodies of members of their crews. There, they were little men and ranged in height from 32 to 46 inches. They were dead in all cases, killed in the disasters. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So this allegedly comes from these military intelligence guys that told this UFO researcher, you know, these anonymous ones, these American ones. They know this, and these, this is the information they told him. So must be true, right? <laughs> must be true. So you'll notice here that all of these craft, six of them, well, they crashed, and they crashed in very much what you would call European cultures, right? Except for the Sahara Desert. But that one, that one was so wrecked, you know, they couldn't do nothing with it anyway. So it's all within these various European-type cultures where this happened, strangely enough, right? Why else would, where else would they be flying in the world? Hmm. I find it interesting that these extraterrestrials, these aliens, these advanced aliens with this high technology, well, they come here and they crash quite often, don't they? Interesting that they crash so much. <laughs> you would think they'd get better at flying these things by now. Anyway, let's continue reading here. So he goes on here to say, the examination of the bodies showed they were definitely humanoid, but obviously not from this planet. In some cases, the cause of the crash was determined with accuracy. It wasn't apparent in the others. All ships had the general shape of a saucer with a cabin on the top. All of them were a very light metal, which was assembled in segments that fitted in deep grooves and were pinned together around the base. There was no sign... Of this on the outer surface of the ships, some of the ships had portholes made of an unknown type of glass. Many kinds of unknown materials were found inside the ships. Okay. Must be true, right? These unknown, unnamed intelligence officials from the U.S. To told this Brazilian researcher this. Must be true. Let's read on because there's a couple more points here. We're going to get through with this before we sign off tonight. So he says, number three, the examination of instruments and devices found aboard these discs showed that they were propelled by an extremely powerful electromagnetic field. Evidence shows it as a rotating and oscillating high-voltage electromagnetic field. Such a kind of field obviously produces some type of gravity effect, yet not understood. Number four, all ships were carefully dismantled and studied. Unfortunately, the more important problem was not solved. How these fields were produced and what was the source of the tremendous amount of electrical energy released through these fields. No clues were found in any of the disks examined. Apparently, they got their power from nowhere. 
There is, on the other hand, evidence that large UFOs use some type of atomic engines, as Power Source suggests that they were able to transmit electric power through radio beams as we now send it through wires. Some of these devices found inside the small disks would well serve to receive and to concentrate the electric power coming this way. If this is right, a nuclear power plant operated on a ship or satellite of large dimensions placed outside our atmosphere. None of these UFOs of greater size were captured till now. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So they're nuclear, but it's not just regular nuclear. They have like a satellite or something out there in space that transmits electrical energy directly to this craft. Here's the thing. There are some real-world human technological developments that may actually fall along something like this. Tesla was all about the wireless transmission of electricity. He figured it out. He was able to do it. He built a tower out near Colorado Springs, where he was able to transmit electricity from this tower and light a light bulb 25 miles away wirelessly with this tower. So this is not stuff of fiction, this type of technology. So let's be honest about that. And of course, that had nothing to do with nuclear technology, but, uh, you know, it is what it is. So we have these types of notions. We're already familiar to some people who were a little bit astute at the time in the 1950s. So let's continue reading. What else? What else did these intelligence guys tell this UFO researcher? Number five, our scientists could build a ship propelled by a similar rotating and oscillating electromagnetic field if they knew some method to change the energy released into a nuclear reactor directly into electric power. The problem is not yet solved. So, of course, it's got to be nuclear. Everything's nuclear, right? Nuclear. It's pronounced nuclear. Uh, so, anyway. I think Stanton Freeman worked on nuclear aircraft engines or some such thing when he was alive. Anyway, let's continue. So, number six. These visitors from outer space are dangerous when apprehended and definitely hostile when attacked. We have already lost many planes attempting to shoot down one of them. We have no defense against them till now. They outperform easily any of our fighters, which have no chance against them. Guided missiles are also useless. They can fly still faster than any of them, and can even maneuver around them, as if they were toys, or they can interfere with their electric instruments and make them useless soon after launched. Or, if they liked, they can explode them before they reach their proximities. They have produced the crash of military planes, propeller or jet type, and airliners by stalling their engines through interference with their electrical systems. We don't know yet if this is a side effect or their powerful magnetic field or the result of some kind of weapon, possibly a high-frequency beam of some sort. They have also a horribly destructive long-range weapon, which has been used mercilessly against our jet fighters. In one case, for example, a U.S. Navy interceptor with a crew of two scrambled to go after a UFO. Their mission was, as usual, to make it land or to shoot it down if necessary. They used their guns. The answer was immediate and terrifying. 
Instantly, all metallic parts of their plane were disintegrated, disrupted into thousands of fragments, and they found themselves suddenly seated in the air. Non-metallic pieces or objects were not affected by this phenomenon. One of them was killed, but the other lived to tell the story. We have evidence that this tremendous weapon is an ultrasonic beam of some sort, which disrupts the molecular cohesion of any metallic structure. They have means to paralyze our radar systems, too, to interfere with our radio and television apparatus and to short-circuit our electric power plants. So I'm going to pause for a moment. So this guy was flying the invisible woman plane, Wonder Woman's invisible airplane after this, right? They disintegrated the plane, leaving only the non-metallic parts. So there he was, seated in midair, <laughs> nothing. And, <laughs> oh, man, so... These are the kinds of ridiculous claims that are made in the field of ufology. And then people wonder why this hasn't been taken seriously in the mainline scientific community. These are the things that are told. Now, is this disinformation? At the very least, it seems disingenuous because you always have these anonymous sources who claim these things secondhand... Second hand, or third hand, or fourth hand, as we've seen earlier here. And it's it's fanciful fiction, folks, a lot of it. it. It's nice. It's fun to think about, right? But where's the actual evidence that any of this is true? This is just a whole lot of nothing. Let's be honest about it. This gets you no closer to resolving the mystery of UFOs or UAPs or whatever you want to call them, or the notion that perhaps extraterrestrial intelligences or some other beings from elsewhere exist and have been visiting here and interacting with humans to some degree or another. This gets us no closer to any of that. This notion that there's these tall whites, there's these grays, there's these Nordic guys, and of course we have the, these other varieties of things. And we have these notions being made that the military knows about it. Well, of course they do. Two anonymous intelligence operatives came and told a UFO researcher in Brazil in 1950 about some of this stuff. That makes it true, right? <laughs> so he goes through, and there's just so many more points here. Let's just finish up these last couple points before we sign off here. So he says here, number seven, they have not showed till now any interest in contacting us. They are obviously preparing a planet-wide huge military operation to interfere against us. <laughs> of course, obviously, obviously, right? <laughs> we don't know what kind of operation this will be. There are, however, three possibilities. The first one, total war followed by... Mass landings to destroy our power, slave the remnant of our people, and colonize the planet. The second one is police action to stop our plans for the conquest of space and to avoid our dangerous progress in the field of atomic weapons. This would involve mass landings at strategic points with occupation by forces of limited areas of vital interest for these purposes. Or the third option, friendly interference followed by military intimidation to make us agree with their plans for us, whatever they may be, avoiding open war or any other kind of direct interference, patrolling and eventual police action only outside our atmosphere. So, of course, well, 
it seems strange that these two intelligence, military intelligence guys, these American ones, would know this and would tell this to the Brazilian UFO researcher, right? These anonymous sources, by the way. And that these are the only three possible reasons why these aliens could be here, or the, the three possible things they could be looking for. Because, you know, we understand alien beings' motivations, right? <laughs> totally, totally. Anyway, the next point he makes here is all military authorities and governments through the world are informed about the situation. There is an exchange of information through intelligence services and top-secret military conferences are held periodically to discuss new developments on the subject. The Brazilian Navy, for example, receives monthly classified reports from the U.S. Navy and sends back to them any information available here. A similar contact exists among our Army and Air Force and several similar military organizations in other countries. Here in Brazil, only the persons who work in the problem know the real situation. Intelligence officers in the Army, Navy, and Air Force, some high-rank officers in the High Command, the National Security Council, and a few scientists whose activities are connected with it and a few members of certain civilian organizations doing research for military projects and apparently various others <laughs> as well. So many people involved in the project, but nobody's involved in the project. Uh, but let's continue. So next he says, all information about the UFO subject from military is not only classified or reserved for official uses, it is top secret. Civilian authorities and military officers in general are not entitled to know. Even our president is not informed of the whole truth. He also says military authorities through the world agree that the people are not entitled to know anything about the problem. Some military groups believe that such knowledge would be a tremendous shock, enough to paralyze the life in our countries for many years in the future. Yes, so shocking. So shocking, in fact, that came out. It's on the congressional record. Hey, we're not alone in the, the universe. And nobody cares. So shocking. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, okay. To conceal the truth from the public, a carefully planned censorship is under operation for several years. The policy to debunk the whole saucer subject is the better weapon we are using for this purpose. Ridicule is an effective tool against most people who attempt to inform the public, but other measures are sometimes necessary, chiefly against persons who possess evidence that, if published, would open the eyes of the people. In some countries, force has been used to silence some of them when this is not possible. All tricks had been used to make their evidence useless. In a few cases, unfortunately, violence had to be used. We regret this, but we have no choice. We are going to keep this thing secret at any cost. We are not interested in the so-called inalienable rights of the people. Right or wrong, we, the military, are going to do our job and no one is going to stop us. And I think that last sentence there says it all. There's the intention. They don't want us to know the truth. If they do know something, they're not telling us. They don't want us to know. They think very little of you. They don't care about your quote-unquote inalienable rights. That's what's being presented in this context. So, whatever you think about this subject, exopolitics. We didn't even really get to the heart of exopolitics. This is just the preliminary stuff that allegedly led up to this notion of exopolitics. How we got involved, according to those who push these ideas, 
how we got involved with these alien civilizations and interacted with them in the past, allegedly here. All of it done through the auspices of military. So this is where everything was set up. And we have this notion of exopolitics, of trying to get along with these other races, alien races, and making treaties with them and such. And this will eventually maybe shake out in the public view the same way it is where we have our political meetings with foreign countries here, foreign advisory committees and such things, same old notion, government. You know, our governments have been so truthful with us in the past and have actually served us so well in the past. What could go wrong here, right? <laughs> when they're out there doing business with shady otherworldly beings, allegedly. <laughs> what could go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? But at any rate, just if you... In case you thought regular politics was bad enough, keep in mind this is all the shady dealings that goes on in the circles of ufology. They push this narrative, these types of narratives, on the true believers in the UFO phenomenon. Don't get me wrong, there's a real phenomenon, and there are real manifestations of things we don't understand that take place. But this notion, folks, in my view, is all deception. It's all just fanciful fiction to capture the mind, get you playing the what-if game, thinking in these terms. Do you really think there's all this intrigue? There's these alien races that have this secret Cold War going on, and they live right next door to each other, underneath our military bases. <laughs> think about that. And then, of course, there's the uh, blonde-haired people with 24 teeth. <laughs> Some of the details sound ridiculous and absurd. Not to mention that the uh, the, the gray alien teenagers crashed mom's ship. <laughs> and we're supposed to take this seriously. If this is the truth of what's really going on behind the scenes, then, boy, it's perfect for the idiocracy that we live in, isn't it? <laughs> Take me to your leader. <laughs> These are the ones. Uh, I guess that's why Joe Biden's the leader, right? Get good old sniffer McRetard. There you go. Talk to the gray aliens. Oh, we crashed our ship again. Sorry. <laughs> what a load of crap. Anyway, but uh, I do like to entertain these ideas, folks. And I, I do I do take the UFO subject seriously to a certain degree, but when it's when you have stuff like this that comes out that's just simply made to sell stories to people, that's what it's for. It's entertainment. And when you come across this stuff and you find that, it kind of puts a black eye on serious UFO research and disclosure attempts. So what do we have to work with here? This is just an endless cul-de-sac to keep your mind spinning in circles and coming to no real conclusions and getting no closer to any sort of truth on this topic. It's all very much speculative in nature. It's fanciful fiction, and it's this kind of stuff that reinforces our pop culture idea of what aliens should be and what they should look like and how they should act and what we think their place is interacting with us. That's all it is. It's social programming, folks. 
specifically catered to a portion of the society that is interested in this subject. That's what the field of ufology has become. That's what they've been for a long time now. That's what we look at when we see this stuff. And these are the kinds of things that some people have taken very seriously. And I think they're being misled. They're being led further away from what's true about this phenomenon by following these types of materials. This is how you end up going to the extreme and listening to people like David Wilcock. <laughs> who tells you about the blue chicken people that are coming to save us. Uh, so you have all these kind of notions of things. But this is, this is just one portion of the ufology field that's always driven me nuts it's it's all speculation based upon hearsay based upon hearsay all second and third hand and fourth hand accounts from reliable anonymous sources that doesn't do us any good does it that doesn't do us any good somebody who knows in the intelligence community and it's all the same thing, and we see this being played out in front of us right now with the current things going on in the UFO field and in the mainstream about the UFO phenomenon. Same things playing out again. It's all hearsay. Second-hand this and third-hand that. and Oh, these programs, they exist, but you'll never find them. Oh, the aliens, yes, we're in touch with them, but you'll never find them. You'll never see them. You'll never know where they are. You can't get near them. No way to prove anything. It's all taken on the basis of belief by a lot of people. And like I said, it's it's fun to entertain the notion and the idea, but it is fanciful fiction in the end when it comes down to it. And a lot of it plays upon archetypal notions in the human psyche just to keep you keep you hooked and going down the trail here. And digging deeper into the nonsense. And then they'll give you some more fanciful accounts. Oh, you you know about the gray aliens. Of course, pop culture has made them popular. Do you know about the tall white aliens? <laughs> Do you know about the orange Ebens? <laughs> There's all these different ones presented by different people in the UFO field. And honestly, there's really not anything to go on with it it's all hearsay based on hearsay like i said but this is what gets pushed and then repeated by researchers we see how researchers repeat other researchers in that writing with this stuff without going back to the source and looking or being able to find an accurate source an anonymous source told this researcher who told this researcher who said this to the other researcher and that's what we're going with it gets repeated and repeated until it becomes a new mythology, which is exactly what happened with Roswell. It's a new mythology for our modern sensibilities, folks. It's an archetype leveraged against the human mind, and there's no way to prove it true or false. It's all taken on a basis of faith. And it's about where it leads your mind that's important. How it steers your behavior, that's what's in the important aspect of it. It's the social engineering aspect of all of it. 
And that's what the whole thing's about, exopolitics. It's about trying to convince people in believing in extraterrestrial life and that it's important that we put time and resources and monies into this notion. Making people think in these terms, many people will accept, I think at this point, that perhaps we're not alone in the universe. And so they'll wholeheartedly back this notion of having communication with extraterrestrials or some such thing, and that it might be important for the future of the human race. So therefore, they'll accept this notion of things. So when the Space Brothers arrive, <laughs> then we'll be ready to have these open talks with them. Who speaks for planet Earth, as Stanton Freeman used to ask? Who speaks for planet Earth? And we'll just leave it at that. Anyway, I hope you found this entertaining, at the very least, if not informative. I appreciate each and every one of you. We'll catch you next time. Have a good night now. Come with me. Baby